Episode 153, Dr. Nicole Lipkin, Clinical and Organizational Psychologist. And that's how I kind of started growing the business. And then all of a sudden, I, th- I think people in my field are really weird. So I decided I didn't want to work with weird people. So I brought my friends in that were in the mental health field. And hopefully they're not weird. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Nicole and her work, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 153. As always, thanks for listening. And now here is Dr. Nicole Lipkin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. And our guest today, Dr. Nicole Lipkin, is an internationally recognized clinical and organizational psychologist, executive coach, and keynote speaker. Nicole is the author of two popular leadership books. They are What Keeps Leaders Up at Night, Recognizing and Resolving Your Most Troubling Management Issues. And the second book is Why in the Workplace. It's the letter Y, Managing the Me First Generation, quote unquote. I'm not Generation Y, so I won't take issue with that (laughs) characterization. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we'll we'll get to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, First off, welcome to the podcast. How are you, Nicole? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Nicole. First off, I've got to ask, what, what's that stay on the coffee mug? Hope that's not prying too much. No, it's mother of the goddamn year. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> award winner. Multiple award winner. There we have. Multiple. No, no, no. Single, Multiple. single. Yeah, just one, just one. Just one year. <laughs> just no, no. Sorry, going on three years. Going on. Three. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm a mother, and I'm. A mother in a pandemic. There it is. <laughs> well, thank you for having the strength and wits about yourself to be here for doing a silly yeah. little podcast like this. Um, tell you a little bit more about Nicole. Uh, in terms of education, she's earned a doctorate in clinical psychology, a master's of business administration, and a master of criminal justice degree. Yeah. She is the founder and CEO of Hey Kiddo a company dedicated to helping adults gain better control over their children's mental, social, emotional health through technology. She recently exited her first company, Equilibria Psychological and Consultation Services. And as she mentioned, she has a toddler, she has a husband, and what she describes as her chunky cat, who is named, I want to just ask you to say it. El Guapo Meatball. (laughs) How did that name come to be? <laughs> the name came to be because the person I got the cat with wanted to name him um, a guapo, and I wanted to name him Meatball, and he became a guapo Meatball. <laughs> that's a mouthful. <laughs> that's, how it, that's how it happened. <laughs> He's certainly a Meatball. <laughs> yes. So uh, award-winning mother and chunky cat <laughs> lover Nicole Lipkin. That's is. where I am. This is this is this is where I've landed in my life. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you certainly have uh, a lot going on and there's a lot of interesting things you've done in your career. So looking back and, and thinking about it, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, my favorite mistake definitely came with the company that I just exited, uh, Equilibria Psychological. Um, you know, I, I 
I never planned on, I never planned on growing that into a big practice. And um, what happened was I started my career in forensic psychology and loved, loved the work. And that's how I kind of started growing the business. And then all of a sudden, I think, I think people in my field are really weird. So I decided I didn't want to work with weird people. So I brought my friends in that were in the mental health field and hopefully they're not weird. Um, and we grew a practice under the umbrella of equilibrium psych. And, um, it was wonderful. And because we all loved each other so much, it was great. We built this amazing, amazing culture. And, uh, you know, we just, you can feel it when you walk into a company where people really like working and working with each other and it trickled down, our reputation grew. And over the years, I decided to transition out of doing clinical and forensic work into organizational psychology. And I opened up my second company, Equilibria Leadership Consulting, doing executive coaching, leadership development, culture work. So I no longer could do the office management for the psych practice and doing office management for a psych practice. You know, that's taking phone calls, right? When people are vulnerable and, and, and matching them with a therapist, it's dealing with insurance billing. And when you mess up with that, that's insurance fraud, right? It's, it's dealing with just managing the office, all of that. So it was time for me to hire. And um, that's when I met Hope. She was 28 and wanted to be a psychologist when she grew up. And she had no office management experience, but I could teach that. I'm a coach. I can teach that. Um, so I had a really bad feeling when I was interviewing her, but I was also very desperate. And I ignored that and hired her. And from day one, she started screwing up. And, and again, screwing up's a big deal. But I would take her out for coffee and I would coach her and help her problem solve. And then she would just keep on screwing up. And I had a lot of coffee that year, let me tell you. Um, and a year into her employment. And at this point, I'm kind of losing it. I was, I was doing three times the amount of work I would do if I was doing it myself. But I was traveling all over for the consulting and coaching work. Um, and, you know, the, the feel, the vibe, the culture of my organization really was declining, but I was just ignoring it. I was tunnel visioned. A year into our employment, I, I take her off for coffee and I say, look, I'd love to give you a raise. I can't because you keep on screwing up, but let's focus on these goals and work on it. And she said, look, I, she actually said this to me. She said, I completely understand I've been messing up, but you, and she pointed to me, you need to understand how hard it is to be 28 and have your dad pay for your credit cards, your vacations, and your phone bill. I didn't understand. Was she joking or how? No, no, I thought she was. Oh, I thought she was, but she was not. And I was like, well, why don't you work a little harder to not mess up or get another part-time job? Like you're only doing this part-time to save more money. And she's like, but this is my fun year. And that's when I went from being at 28. That's when I went from being not a great boss at that time to a really bad one, like the movie, the movie level one. I was just leaking out all over the place. And I still didn't fire her. Three months later, she she handed in her resignation because her daddy was paying for a month-long European vacation and she was going to go find a real job. And um, it was such a freaking punch in the gut for, for uh, so many reasons. First of all, I wrote a book on managing millennials and I couldn't manage a millennial. Oh, Second you Oh, you had already written the book. I thought yeah. the book came later. Oh, okay. yeah. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I, yeah. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I was messing up Two, I get hired to work with leadership teams and work with companies and the cultures and executives to be show up great, all of that stuff. And I, I was, I was not doing the same and three, I'm a shrink supposed to be really self-aware and in tune. And I couldn't have been less self-aware. Um, 
having said that, having said that, it was the greatest lesson of my greatest professional lesson of my life. Um, Because stepping back, I was when I look in hindsight, I was so, so overwhelmed. I was so stressed out. I could not think straight. I was so resistant to change because it was my decision. It was like some cost bias. I kept on throwing things in. And I had this mindset that there was no other way around it except the way I was going. And I literally like was taking my company and chokeholding it. Um, once I got some perspective and, and worked on these things, you know, the company ended up growing and blossoming and that's the company I just exited. But, um, I realized I wasn't alone in, in, in those leadership derailers. That's, those are pretty common ones. Um, and at least she inspired the second book. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Okay. She did inspire the second book then about managing Gen Y. No, she inspired the second book about is, a book about what keeps leaders up oh, at night. Okay. Oh, yeah, the books are in, yeah. in that order. Okay. So it was uh-huh. keeping you. Yeah. It sounds like this was keeping you up at night. At, at oh, times. I was a mess. I was yeah. at time yeah. all the time. I mean, cause when you think about it, it is those interpersonal things. It is the stuff that you're not doing right and all of that. And it was, it was about being too busy to win, too proud to see and too afraid to lose. And, and those were pretty significant leadership derailers for me at that point. Um, and I'm not saying I haven't had many mistakes and many failures since it just, those, when I had, when I gained perspective of that and they happen still, they happen to all of us. I can see them now. I can see when they're about to happen and get in front of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wow. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing the story and the reflections there. And, you know, the point here is to talk about what we've learned from mistakes yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a category of mistakes of, you know, people talking about like, what's the, the, the story, the parable of the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? Like there, there's, there's a risk in any profession that we don't apply the ideas or the practices or the things that we're encouraging others to do. We may not sure. be applying it to our, to our own work. That that's, that's not too uncommon, right? No, no, not at all. It, it, it It's extremely un- it's extremely common. And I think, you know, it's funny when you look at the profession of psychology, I think we're the worst, we're the worst, you know, we, we don't, a lot of us don't practice what we help others with. Right. Um, so yeah, it was a real, um, it was a real punch in the gut that, that experience but so profoundly eye opening. Well, I, I bet on so many different levels. I mean, so just kind of going back through parts of the story there, I guess, there's that, you know, the, the mistake of not following your gut, even during the interview, but being pressured. I mean, this happens a lot in businesses. Uh, I don't like the expression and you didn't say it, but, you know, any warm body, you know, um, sometimes you, you, you feel that pressure to fill a position instead totally. of standing by waiting to find the right person. Yeah, totally. And I would, you know, there was a couple of factors there. I mean, I think, look, just psychologically speaking, when your gut is, is rate, waving all the red flags it's not psychological frou-frou. Like it's based on wisdom. It's based on experience. Like it's telling you something and yet you, you think it's through. It's not always right, but don't just ignore it. I, I did. Um, and I think, look, I think it's easier said than done to say, don't hire out of desperation because sometimes you're desperate and sometimes you really need someone. But the reality is that value fit, that culture fit, you know, that, that hire and not, not, recognizing the expiration point and not letting go the toxicity cost cost me so much money cost me so much 
turmoil and it cost my culture. Mm-hmm. And it was all my fault. Mm-hmm. It wasn't her mm-hmm. fault. This is how she is. This is how she shows up. You brought her in. Yeah. It was me. And I kept yeah. her. And I and you kept her. Yeah. And it was like this, this, you know, I put so much time, money, and energy in it. It was a sunk cost bias. So much, so much time, money, and I was, energy. I, yeah. I just kept on doing it because I'm like, I can change her, I can fix her. And I kept on making mm-hmm. the excuses. So I was, yeah. I was, I was about to bring that phrase up thinking back to our, 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 each of our MBA educations, they try to teach you ignore the sunk cost. It's the sunk cost fallacy of I've been coaching her for a year and I want to stick with it. I don't want yeah. to admit I may, even if you're telling yourself I made a mistake in hiring, you don't really want to admit it. And you're like, well, it she'll get there. Uh, you, you, the, the cost of training somebody in interviewing and training yeah. someone new is a cost and you, yeah, I could see where you, you stick, you stick with it. But how much of it do you think is kind of, I, I'm, I'm going to generalize about psychologists, this idea of thinking it's your profession to want to help people and to coach them and not give up on them. And that's probably a factor then is as a business leader, when you're, when you've got that hat on, right? I mean, definitely. But I think even more than that, you know, I don't like firing people. I don't like that part of my work. I really don't. And and you know what? After that, I had I had made some other bad promotion decisions and hiring decisions and had trouble cutting the cord. You know, eventually over time and through experience, like that, you know, hiring hope, that was earlier on in my career. Like I've had some years now. Um, I've learned some things. Like I never hire alone. I just don't mm-hmm. hire alone. I, yeah. I I make other people that are integral to the company interview separately, and then we we and and it's all joint. It's joint decisions because we're biased. We you know there's so much stuff that goes in, and I I just think it's important not to do it alone um, and to check yourself. So yeah, sure. I am you know yeah. I th- this is my profession. I'm an organizational psychologist. I work with people. I don't give up on people. I know people. I, I believe in change and evolution that we can all evolve. So sure. I hold on, I hold on tight. <laughs> now you, if, if hope, if this is like a case study where you've changed hope's name to protect hope, that's I've protected hope. a clever <laughs> choice. Cause when you said when you, you, when you were, when you were hiring hope, I guess every time we hire, there is hope that yes, there's this, hope. There. There's hope. Oh yes, I am protecting see, the I, not I, so but, innocent. But, but I see what you did there. That was uh, <laughs> rather <you>. than saying <laughs> Mary or Thank whatever. You. So <laughs> well played. Um, so Nicole, you know, as as a leader and 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 a coach, and you know, you, you have these different businesses. You you use the phrase in um, the title of your second book, "What Keeps Leaders Up at Night," and that's a really common question. Yeah. There's probably a podcast out there called "What Keeps I'm You sure. Up at Night." It's such a common phrase, but like it's, it's, it's taken for granted. So I guess I'll ask you yeah, what keeps you up at night or better yet, how do we keep business pressures or whatever from keeping us up at night? Is that avoidable? I, you know, it's hard. I, I you know, I, I love talking about this topic, you know, and, and how we can kind of gain better control of our own psychology to be more effective and kind of to help our lives and help our leadership and, and be more effective. Um, at the end of the day, it's all of that. Uh, I, I think it's all of those kind of like interpersonal, like ugh, stuff, like even if it's about, even if it's about money, even if it's about 
um, even if it's about having to hire or fire or the growth of your company, like ultimately we're people working with people. It comes down to human beings and it's that nagging stuff that keeps us up. But it's, I think more importantly, it's how we interpret stuff. You know, when I, when I look at myself as a leader and the evolution of myself as a leader and my clients and their evolution, you know, how we can shift the control that we do have and how we can shift our perceptions of situations. Like for example, you know, if, if we get a text message that says um, we need to talk, where does your brain go? I, I mean, I, I have a bad habit of sometimes my brain will leap to the worst case scenario, get a text from a client or a text from somebody in work setting. And, and that's a bad habit. I've tried to remind myself, don't go right there. Right. Because that's your, it's your automatic thought. Like your automatic thought is catastrophizing and like, oh my God, I did something wrong. But if we start practicing something called divergent thinking, which is, which, which scientifically helps us be happier and more open and more agile, we start thinking, you can start forcing yourself or challenging yourself to think of alternative explanations. Like, oh, they need to talk. They're on their, they're finally in their car. They're texting in their car, whatever the alternative explanation might be. That kind of that kind of psychological mental practice actually helps us be more agile and helps us handle the the crap that comes at us that keeps us kind of hanging on at night and going over and that anxiety. And that's like just one teeny little thing. But there are things that we can do to really evolve um, how our brains think and, and help us become more mentally agile. Um, in the way we approach our reactions, our experiences, our interactions, and all of that. But so it's work. an example of divergent thinking would be you get that text and your brain goes to a place of like, oh, they're going to they're going to pull the contract, even though you might not have any good reason for expecting. Why would that be true? So a divergent thinking could be to say, well, they could be con- they could be wanting to talk about extending the contract or like just. Right. Whether it's or something positive or just something different it. or just yeah. something different, like coming up with as many alternative explanations as possible, like convergent thinking, the way we always think is sticking inside of our own box. Divergent forces us. And it's, it's actually a technique used to kind of help you become more innovative in your thinking, more agile, more creative, and like kind of get out of that static status quo. But our brains don't like doing that. It's a lot of energy to do that. It's easier to stay stuck in kind of that. Right. There's um, Deepak Chopra had, has a quote that I absolutely adore. It's we have 60,000 thoughts a day, 95% of the same we had yesterday. And that's the natural human way. And that's amazing. Our brain's protective. It keeps us kind of stuck in those same patterns of thinking, because if we thought differently about everything and we let all the senses come in at any given moment, we would go clinically insane. So it's hard. It's hard. It's much harder to think that way versus just think the, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. Yeah. So um, when you talk, you know, in that book, when you talk about in the subtitle, I think there's a parallel to the types of things we talk about here on My Favorite Mistakes. So the subtitle of the book, again, What Keeps Leaders Up at Night, Recognizing and Resolving Your Most Troubling Management Issues. So here, you know, we talk about recognizing the mistake being willing to acknowledge it, talk about it, reflect on it enough as a way to then help resolve whatever caused led to that mistake so we can avoid repeating it. Um, I mean, yeah, how often in working with leaders are they unable or unwilling to recognize the real core of an issue? I mean, 
I, I, it, it can take some time. Why is that? I think it takes time for all of us to kind of like, um, it takes reflection. It takes time. It takes the development of self-awareness, which is like, you know, a lifelong thing. Um, but you know, I'm a, I'm a, I definitely don't let people off the hook. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you just, it's about understanding the space someone needs to, um, to get there. But the bottom line is that everything that happens, like you can, you can deflect all you want. Like I could have blamed hope all I want. And hope was a mm-hmm. great target to blame. Great. Yeah, target and, to blame. and you weren't doing that to your credit. Yeah. I, no, I blamed her. I blamed her for a oh. year and three months. It was, it was. Oh, only but to, oh okay. Today <laughs> I you don't blame her now. Your, but, uh, no, I don't blame okay. her now. Like it took me a while to get like, Oh, Nicole, you were the problem. Um, it's hard to always be the problem when things mess up, you know? And and look, I have to be honest with you. One of the things I, I get really frustrated with is that like, it's always, it's always the top. It's always a leader. It's always the executive. The truth is, is that life is a two-way street. It's always the dynamic. It's not always one person. It's always the dynamic, but it's, it's each person owning what their stuff was in that dynamic. Um, so I don't subscribe to the whole, like when, you know, when, when things aren't going well in a company or when things aren't going well in a team, it's always the leader. Yes. The leader sets the tone. I, all of that. Absolutely. But it's the dynamic, it dynamic in my mind. And if we can kind of adjust and everyone can kind of gain that self-awareness of how they're contributing to that, man, can we get a lot farther? We could go a lot farther. So one thing, um, you know, that that's talked about increasingly, you're looking at organizational culture. Yes. This is something I've tried to learn about is, this concept of psychological safety. Yeah. And I'm curious in your thoughts on the two-way street where the one thing I've seen recently that I think is uh, really problematic is when the pressure gets completely put on the employees of basically lecturing, you should feel free to speak up. I'm like, well, yeah. if, it were only th- if it were only that easy, <laughs> right? So would, would you agree something like that? Like how does the building of psychological safety start more with the leaders or how much? Yeah. I, I think the building of psychological safety, like kind of, it starts with like that psychological contract, right. And ensuring that that psychological contract isn't broken. It's just kind of like, it, it's collectively deciding, like, here's what we're going to be. And then demonstrating and modeling, like we're all, you know, it, it's kind of like a child, right. You know, you're, you're, your child models your behavior, your child reflects, you know, you have an anxious moment, you're leaking out. We mimic one another, we're contagious, we infect one another emotionally. So it is about owning it and setting the stage. And I think to create psychological safety, um, you know, power exists. And being able to be vulnerable, your power exists, like own it, right. own mm-hmm. it. There's, and there's different types of power, but like, even if you don't have referential power, that relationship power where people are going to jump off a bridge for you, just having positional power, just being the CEO, like you need to, if you want people to be vulnerable, you need to be vulnerable. And I think that's interesting because one of the things like historically, we've always wanted our leaders to be calm, cool, and collected. You know what? When you're too calm, cool, and collected, everyone else feels weird when they're not. <laughs> right. So... Like, I think it's just like going through COVID it's, I I have found the, in myself and, and the leaders that I work with, the ones that have been more vulnerable are the ones whose teams have been, um, have felt better, have had the outlet, have felt that psychological safety. Um, 
and and I think it's power. I think it's powerful stuff. And 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 the companies that have like wanted to do culture assessment work with us and like wanted to like kind of kind of co-create what that blueprint's going to look like going forward versus like it's all top down like and like let's all have a voice in this and move have really have just take leaps they've just they've done amazing it's amazing yeah. stuff and w- would you agree or tell us a little bit more, um, you know, psychological safety is not yes, no. There's there's degrees. Of course. Of that in a workplace. Of course. And I think that, um, you know, I think and, it, and it's based on perception. You know, I might perceive a relationship to be completely psychologically safe and we and you might perceive that same relationship to be completely unsafe. It's all about perception. And the truth is, is we can't we can't, I can't change how you feel about it, but if I am in tune enough, I can mitigate it by looking at other areas that kind of like I can move. Like one of the things there's, you know, based on research from negotiation, there are these core emotional concerns. I'm going to psych nerd out on you for a minute. There's these core emotional concerns that we all experience because they're based on our kind of psychological development, things like autonomy like affiliation, appreciation, fairness, role, status, you know, all of these things. I won't go into all the detail about it, but like, if I, if I take, if, if you perceive me to take away your autonomy, because you perceive me micromanaging you and not trusting you, I can't change that perception. Like you're always going to, you're going to have always had that experience, but if I'm in tune to it and stop like defending against it, I can maybe mitigate it by focusing on like, helping you feel more affiliated or, or, or like kind of, you know, boosting you up a little bit with your role and your status. And I I can maneuver that. That's why to me, leadership is not about like all these five steps. It's all about understanding our own psychology and understanding group and organizational dynamics and grooving a little bit better with one another. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just one other question. Um, And and don't apologize for geeking out about your field. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why you're here and that's why that's your field and you've written books. So pick your brain and hear, hear your thoughts here. But one other question on psychological safety, um, like how much of that is something to directly talk about with the team versus just creating the conditions where it's there without consciously talking about, I, I don't know if I'm articulating this, well, there's like a direct path yeah, where yeah. You, you would spend a lot of time consciously talking about psychological safety. We want to be a psychologically safe environment as opposed to, let's say, never using the phrase, but doing the things that would, um, you know, I- encourage people to speak up and then make sure they're not ridiculed, punished, threatened as a result right. of speaking up. Like how much of it comes from, I mean, I, I'm, this isn't a well-formed question. So my mistake, but like sort of like the direct, we want to focus on a path versus we, 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 we want to create that psychological safety, but in a less direct, less in your face. Right. Yeah, no, way. I get you. you know what I mean? Like a company that might say one of our values is that we have a culture of psychological safety as opposed to places that have it, but it's built on other cultures, cultural norms, such as Everybody is safe to speak up without fear of being ridiculed, yeah. threatened, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a fan of the second one, you know, just like doing the behaviors that promote it. Having said that, 
and, and like really investing in like, and, and in those behaviors that promote it. And, and you know what, when you do reviews and you do like feedback, integrating those, um, those characteristics and those kind of traits that do promote that, you know, versus just focusing on metrics and did you meet your goals. So I'm a fan of that. Having said that, there are certain cultures, there are certain companies that are so far away from it that it requires almost like psychological safety 101. And sometimes psychological safety 101 is here's what it is <laughs> and, and let's learn about it. Let's, let's learn about it, but learning about it, that, that's like one centimeter of, of it. Because then it's, then it's like, how do you build in the accountability around it? Right. And, and the consistency. And the consistency. And how do you, how, you know, you know, you're, if you have a manager that you're promoting who creates really dangerous conditions for people and toxic conditions, and you're promoting that person or you're, or that person's remaining in a management position, you're not building psychological safety 101. So it's, it's, it's not just teaching it, it's talking the walk. It, it is all those little other things that make the difference. Um, and I actually think it can be insulting uh, when you just, when, when, when you just want the workshop, people are smart. People pick up on this when you just want the workshop, but you don't want to do the work. I, I would say don't do the workshop because it's, right. it, it's going to well, backfire. Even that more. help it. That happens in a lot of different realms. You hear people talk about like, it's Black History Month, so you did the workshop on DE and I, but then that's the end of it. Like it's got to be a twelve month yeah. a year commit. If you're, you're, you're going to do the workshop, or you're going to back to you, you, you frame this better. Are you talking about it, or are you doing the behaviors? Mm-hmm. Not just talk mm-hmm. about. Oh, we value DE and I. What are you actually doing? Just to use that as another example. Right, right. Like I, I think you know something in my company. Like we, we really, we collectively have built a, or um, we collectively actively work on psychological safety, because it's not just a one and done, it's you work on it. But that also means that like, if I'm having a crappy day and I'm leaking out, I get called out on it. Like I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get called out. If I'm running a meeting where I'm like, and I sometimes don't even realize it where I'm like, I'm really intense in business, but like what happened? What ha-? like that? It's so like, I'm showing up in a way that is leaking out on other people. I get called out on it. And you know what? Thank you. Because sometimes I don't recognize it. And sometimes my colleague doesn't recognize that they're doing, or my other colleague doesn't recognize that they're doing it. I'll never forget one of the most valuable lessons in my life was my brother said, do you know when you're intently listening to people, you give them dirty looks? (laughs) I had no idea. So can you imagine being an executive coach or even when I used to be a therapist years ago and being like, when people were talking? Thank you for telling me. <laughs> right. So we could we could roll the video back to where I was stammering through this question I was trying to form about psychological safety. Like it didn't. I was struggling with the question so much I wasn't even focusing on whether you were give. The, I, what, what, if there was a dirty look, it might have been like, "Come on, Mark, spit out the question already." <laughs> I wasn't giving you. I, well, I've gotten the feedback, so I know to watch my face. And Zoom's ah. been helpful. I can see my face. there's a lot of problems caused by having that constant mirror in front of you. Maybe it's interesting. There's been such a, um, because of that, there's been a massive increase in plastic surgery and a massive increase in body, um, like, um, body image issues and with children. 
that's really interesting. Oh, with kids because of Zoom school. Yeah, because yeah. they're they're you know at a certain age you start noticing and comparing yourself and they're picking on everything and you know it's it's a problem. Well, Zoom has that touch up your appearance feature. We don't get that in real life, and I don't know how much of an effect that. Has. I didn't even know it had it. Oh, it's down in the <laughs> settings. You there's there's like a sliding scale of. Uh... Really. <laughs> Well, here's what you get. This is not touched up. This is what the, no, this is the, you're on the zoom default settings, which is probably in the middle on that. But, uh, but now if I look in the mirror, I'm like, that's not how I look on zoom. (laughs) I shouldn't be looking at my own, my own zone zoom window or uh, a mirror too much. So let's, 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 uh, I'd love to ask you about your book, uh, about Gen Y. Um, uh, and, and, and what, you know, kind of in, in, in a nutshell, I mean, how, how, how different is Gen Y than other generations? I mean, it's an older book. Um, but look, every generation, every generation is different. We all have different influences. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a long time ago that the, the Gen Ys are older now. Um, but you know, it, you, you think about it. I, I always like to relate, um, you know, they walk through metal detectors to go, they walk through metal detectors to get to school. That's different, right? You know, it, during their formative years, it was 9-11. And, it, and it's not that the boomers didn't have their incredible scares hiding under desks, you know, during bomb scares, things like that. I don't know what we had as Gen Xers. Well, we Gen had the X? No, we, well, Gen X, we had the threat of uh, nuclear war. We there had that, nuclear that, war. That movie There's the that. day after and war games, There's and that, that was hanging over our heads still. War games was the best movie. We had that. Um, so every generation has it. But I think some of the educational shifts, you know, where, you know, when, when we were growing up or boomers were growing up, like you messed up in school. Oh, man, you were held accountable. Things shifted a little bit. I mean, not saying that every parent did this, but now the teacher was held accountable. Um, you know, I I remember um, I was a professor uh, at, at a university for a little bit, an adjunct, and I was teaching a, a forensic psych class when I was doing forensics. And I failed a student because she plagiarized. And I caught her, she plagiarized Aristotle. Um the only reason why I knew it was Aristotle was because I knew that I love the movie Legally Blonde. <laughs> and there's a line, law is not free from passion. And she started her set her, she started her research paper on that. Without so attribution. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And um yeah. I I the dean made me wanted me to change the grade because the mom called and, and freaked out. Helicopter parent. Yeah. So like that's different. Like I talked to for the book, talked to like um you know, this one karate school that instructor that teaches young kids and he had to start adding lines to the belts because kids weren't moving up quick enough or taking out goalies in soccer or little, little soccer. I don't know what it's called, not little league. That's different. I mean, every generation is different. Social media, like now the newer generation, like, you know, why was digital natives? I don't even know what this generation is going to be called how we get our news, being able to use critical thinking and discern the difference. Every generation's different. Every generation evolves. I do think one thing that has happened though, is like, you know, because of technology and because our ability to sign off and not deal with conflict and not have this and our distractions for it and the addictive quality of it, you're seeing, I think there's an emotional intelligence decline. 
because we don't, this is how you learn emotional intelligence. You, 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 you have conflict. You, you need to learn how to flex. My cat's scratching my chair. El Guapo Meatball there. Hello. <laughs> so I think like there's some, there's obviously consequences to the shifts in generations as there have been. Um, and we need to be mindful of that. And that affects workplaces. This affects organizations and how we recruit and how we attract. We need to be thoughtful about this. Um, but I do think one of the things, especially with, you know, great resignation, all of that, I always say this, like, until the robots take over, it's humans, it's human beings, we're human beings working with human beings. So it, it still comes back to basic human needs and wants. And if we can really get there, that's, that's, that's the sticky stuff about culture. That's the sticky stuff about attracting and retaining people. Yeah. So looking forward, you said that book you know, has been out for a while, whatever label, whatever next generation, whatever young, next young cohort that comes into the workplaces. Is it a fair summary of what you're saying is that there are certain consistent human needs that are always going to be there, but then every generation is going to have sort of its own influences and um, sure. respond to the same situation in different ways. We need to try to learn that as older managers. Yeah, sure. But it's, it comes down to basic human needs. It comes down to basic needs. It's kind of what I was saying, like being appreciated, being affiliated, being autonomous, like the, the, the sense of power and control of your role. Like these are basic human needs. Yeah. And, and, and I've taken issue with that at times where you see articles of, you know, one, one example would be like, you know, millennials want to have their voice heard in the workplace. And like, well, I we think that do. was probably true of the baby boomers I worked with when I was young and they're still in the workforce. And so when I, I it, it, it bothers me when some of those, what you're describing as basic human needs get attributed to as if they've been just discovered by this generation, maybe this younger generation is just louder about saying, I want this. And the boomers right. have been beaten in the submission a little bit. Well, if or, you look at the environmental conditions, like boomer, it wasn't necessarily you know, there were, there were environmental conditions. Like there was, you know, hierarchy was a little bit more common. Like it wasn't, it, it, it was, some things were taboo, but it's still basic human needs. Whether or not they did speak up was different. It, it is a little, it's more accepted now to speak up. Look, Xers and boomers might roll their eyes, but it is more expected. It's it, it expected. Um, so I think it's more about the environmental shifts and the cultural shifts, but ultimately humans, humans have needs. And uh, that, that's why I do this work. That's why I think psychologists consulting with organizations and organizational psychologists like that's, this is human dynamics here. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, and again, our guest has been Dr. Nicole Lipkin. Um, I want to talk about, hey, kiddo, but first tell us you on, on the theme of organizational psychology, yeah. equilibria leadership consulting, you know, who, who's yeah. your ideal client? Why, why do they bring you in? Oh, well, we honestly, we were, we're, we're size and industry agnostic because we want to remain unbiased and, and agile and nimble. But we do, you know, our, our sweet spot, we do executive coaching, uh, executive assessment, leadership development. And one of our other sweet spots is, is the culture assessment and like helping companies co-create that blueprint and figure out what are the immediate, short, mid and long-term initiatives that will really shift a culture that everyone wants. And, and here comes El Guapo Meatball across the desk. He's about to appear <laughs> soon. <laughs> um, 
So <laughs> there, we there go. he is. For those who are li- just listening to the podcast, you're missing out. The cat just peeked in and nope, I guess wants no part of me. <laughs> and you're about to see the meatball part of him. <laughs> you know, he sleeps on the bed all day. And this is when he makes his appearance. All right, buddy. <laughs> does not care. There we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, equilibrium leadership consulting, and, and we're, we're we're organizational psychologists that have clinical backgrounds, and uh, been at this for years, and love it. Yeah. Um, for the for those who were just listening, I'm I'm gonna whether Nicole's uh, no, I, I'm gonna make a clip of uh, the cat coming through. We'll do a little I'm short so clip. Glad. <laughs> Even if you listen to the whole episode, go to the the, the episode page and and, and look at the uh, the El Guapo meatball highlights. <laughs> Amazing. See the cat. I'm glad the cat was here. <laughs> um, so you're working with organizations uh, and, and adults, and you're also working with parents and children. Tell us about Hey Kiddo. Yeah. So the parent and children. So Hey Kiddo is our is a startup, and it kind of exists between Equilibrium Leadership and and the business I just sold, Equilibrium Psychological. You know, because we social emotional leadership development is, is it's, it's, it's done across a lifespan. So what we're trying to do with this startup is help adults um, better control their children's mental, social, and emotional health. Um, and through technology, actually getting off technology to do the talking, but through the information they get on the technology. And we recently just won a national science foundation grant. Um, and we have um, it's, it's, you know, we're trying to tackle the childhood mental health problem crisis, actually. So that's what we're doing. And again, it came from, you know, working with organizations and hearing the same complaints around young professionals entering the workforce, but also looking at on the clinical side, the, the, the escalating crisis that's occurring with children. And if we can just, if we can help the people that help children and are with children be better in tune with what's going on so they can get early intervention and build the skills in their children and themselves to model it, that, that will, the skills that help against life challenges, social, emotional leadership skills, we can shift the course of, of this crisis. Um, so that's what we're doing and that's what we're trying mm-hmm. to tackle. So a, a really serious topic. And so I want to end on a cat joke again after. Please. So, uh, well, first <laughs> off, um, Hey-kiddo.com is uh, the website there. There'll be a link in the show notes and equilibrialeadership.com. Is there uh, a business idea about how to control your cat and keep them off of your Zoom call or cats are just going to, cats are just going to cat. Cats are just going to cat, but let's see, let's see what we can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think El Guapo Meatball walking across the screen was not the biggest mistake. (laughs) Anyone's made a podcast. This happens in our our work from home. Uh, it does. Era. It's the first time I've had a cat walk across the screen, but hey, yeah, was- and it's good. It adds some laughter. Like, hey, it lightens yeah, it lightens everyone up a little bit. <laughs> this is life now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Nicole, thank you uh, so much again, Doctor Nicole Lipkin, uh, uh, Equilibria Leadership com that rolls right off the tongue. Sorry for my Just mistake. So easy. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This has been fun. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Dr. Nicole Lipkin for being a great guest to learn more about her and her company. Again, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake one five three. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. 
I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.